Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res. Here at What's the Res, we are dedicated to hosting the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. I'm your host, Josh Herring. I am the Dean of Students and Head of Debate for Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. My guest today uh, is an old friend from years ago, uh, Mr. Luke Jude, who is the Director of Planning for Waynesboro, Virginia, is going to join us to talk about the February Public Forum Resolution, which reads, Resolved, on balance, the benefits of urbanization in West Africa outweigh the harms. Luke, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, Josh. Well, Luke, before we get into all the nitty gritty of cities and sewage pipes and schools and roads and all that, um, tell us a bit about your debate story. I think I'm correct in remembering you were the first person I knew to did debate in high school, and then you kept going with debate in college. So tell us tell us some of what you've done over the years as far as debate goes. That's right. I was homeschooled, so I was in the homeschool debate league in high school near towards the end, and I got really into it. And then I debated in college at Grove City, and I did mostly NPDA parley. Uh, but some uh, British parliamentary towards the end, world style, and actually got to go to Worlds my senior year, which was a ton of fun. Then afterwards, I taught debate camps to high schoolers during the summer, and I also spent six months in Botswana uh, doing debate and helping with the world's uh, World University's Debating Championship in 2011, which was held in Botswana. Oh man, is that the one that you were then competing at? Is that is that was that was in Botswana, or was that a different so I, one, different location? I competed at it in 2010 in Turkey, and then in 2011, I was there on a scholarship, and I was just helping with the organizing committee, doing logistics and registration, and I helped coach the University of Botswana team a little bit, and we went to Pan-African Championships in Namibia, which was really fun. Man, what a great experience that must have been. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, I, I love how debate helps people really see the world in a lot of different ways. I mean, not just the intellectual disciplines of comparing arguments, but literally uh, there are so many people who help students travel as part of the debate world and you get to kind of see just how broad the debate community is. That's that's fantastic. It's, it's also really neat because over there, Botswana is a small country, about 2 million people. And, you know, there's really just one major university, the University of Botswana. There's maybe four other sort of secondary universities. But the folks that are in the debate club at the University of Botswana are the future politicians of the country. So, and that was kind of true of a lot of countries over there and a lot of international debate programs, folks that that get involved. Also, international debate, the British Parley style, I'm a huge advocate for. I think it trains debaters uh, a lot better for sort of the real world of political discourse than U.S. debate does. Uh, you mean, uh, you, you, you don't think there's a lot of efficacy in being able to run a uh, plan-inclusive counterplan and develop the, the perfect critique <laughs> format? That, that doesn't actually win votes or influence people? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, there are some interesting parallels to like the British parliamentary system to the parliamentary system that's used in a lot of other countries and the American debate system to the two-party system in the U.S. And that, you know, the 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 one-on-one, you know, one team against another team, two-team format in the U.S., your incentive is just to make the other team lose. If you can make the other team lose, then you win. Uh, in British Parley, there are four teams in every round. There's a coalition government and then two opposition factions. And you've got to distinguish yourself. And you can you can really try to nail one team, and maybe they'll get the fourth rank, but you'll get the third. So you really have to also bring some positive ideas if you want that number one rank in the round. 
Oh, that is fascinating. I we we have experimented on my team. We had a couple days at the end of a quarter where we decided, okay, we don't have a tournament. We're getting ready for imminently. The next mm-hmm. resolutions haven't come out yet, so I was looking for things to do, and I found a uh, just breakdown of British parliamentary style. And so we did two days and tried to have a single round across with all the parameters yeah. of however long we have for class at that point, but. Um, I don't know that we necessarily did it correctly, but it, my students loved it. They loved, and even my uh, some of my speech kids found that their speech skills actually prepared them pretty well to jump into a mm-hmm. debate format, which I'm always yeah. on the lookout for. Yeah, it maybe doesn't go to the same depth of logic that U.S. debate theory does, but that's part of the stuff people can't follow, though. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That is very true. I had a I had a public forum round at a tournament this past weekend where. Uh, I, I, the kid, the student denied a previous experience debating policy, but which I'm, so I'm assuming this means the coach must've done policy because there was way too many jargony terms dropped in public forum for my comfort. Well, uh, Luke, I'm, I'm always happy to meet people who have gone on to be thoroughly successful and at least debate as part of their story. Uh, so tell us a little bit about where you've gone in life post-college. I, mean, I know you're now director of planning. So how did you discover a love for city planning and kind of get into that as a career field? Sure. Uh, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an architect or a civil engineer. I played SimCity constantly. Built my first city of a million people in SimCity when I was six years old. So that was my thing. And then I uh, just totally got out of that. I got into debate and I think people will pigeonhole you as either a letters guy or a numbers guy. You know, you're a math science person or you're an arts person. And, you know, I liked debate. I was good at it and kind of just thought, well, I'm, a, I'm an arts person and had some weird things happen with math. So I just thought I'll study political science. I did that. Got really into political philosophy, thought I'll go get a Ph.D. in political philosophy and teach and stuff. And uh, kind of through just a series of circumstances, realized that I was not enjoying that route, that there was something missing there. And uh, dad pushed me to do some aptitude testing for career stuff, Uh, you know, objective type of test where they have you play with the blocks and do these charts and all these things. And they kind of came back from and were like, man, you have really high spatial and numerical reasoning abilities. um, And you're not using them at all in your chosen fields. And and you're really not very good at some of these things that are sort of necessary to be, you know, in some of these fields you've looked at. Um, Have you thought about trying to shift over towards engineering, urban planning or that kind of thing? And uh, incidentally, I was already starting to read a lot about planning and was fascinated by it. I thought it was just really, really interesting stuff. And it tied in everything that I'd learned before. Um, And I I am a little bit of an an arts guy, but... Planning really is a jack-of-all-trades discipline. You're sort of the fulcrum point between the technicians, the engineers, the architects, the development business community, and the sort of political side. Um, It's really just the political side of of development. Um, And so having a political background was helpful for me. Uh, It's really important. You're mainly engaging in uh, public discourse and planning. And so having some debate ability... um, also, it's not as much. There's some folks that just have competitive personalities, and I think they really enjoy law school. You know, if you want to, you enjoy the part of debate where you have your side, and you're just going to try to find any way to make the other guys lose, um, and really want to advocate for your side. Then, then you know, law school is probably better. I had a lot more of a cooperative personality, even in debate rounds. I enjoyed considering both sides of an issue and kind of playing with, you know, could I think that? Maybe I could. And. Uh, planning is much more like that. We have to take mediation and facilitation skills um, in grad school. And, and you're doing a lot of trying to understand where everyone's coming from, trying to see if you can integrate a vision that everyone can get behind. 
So city planning, it sounds like, is I, I guess in the back of my head, I sort of had a uh, uh, quasi-communist picture of someone drawing up a very detailed blueprint and then just like, aha, the city plan yeah. <laughs> is that we will have a CVS pharmacy right. on this corner. So therefore, it's going to happen. But you're describing something much more organic, where it's almost as if every stakeholder gets is, is kind of coming to the table and the planner is sort of the facilitator for developing a consistent vision of what a, a city is going to be. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I'd say that's an accurate way to put it. There's so many different players at work. As you said, I mean, there are places and, and regimes in history that have done city planning in that way. Um, and in fact, it's funny, we would get a lot of Chinese students in my um, program. And a lot of them came in with much better design skills than the Americans did uh, and tended to have more of an architectural orientation towards it. Um, because they, you know, planning a city is deciding where everything goes. Um, and there is, we definitely learned some of that. We did design, uh, my program was in an architecture school and there's planners that go to work for developers and help to do subdivision layout and all that kind of thing. Uh, but generally as planners in the U S are political bureaucrats, they're dealing with the, the land use law. And so a lot of what I'm, you know, land use is, uh, just so much more complicated than, you know, it's affected by the market. It's affected by. Um, politics and people's, uh, but everything you do on a piece of property affects your neighbors and everybody has ideas about what should happen with every piece of property, especially the closer people live, the more urban, the environment, the closer people are, the the less that you're able to separate all the externalities that are overlapping uh, across them. And cities really thrive and grow and flourish uh, and are great places to be when you've you can effectively overlap all those externalities on top of each other and people are getting all these spin-off benefits from each other's presence uh but that also creates a lot of friction and so yeah a lot of planning is mediation and you know somebody wants to build a bar on their own property in this place that they purchased and their neighbors think this is a neighborhood there shouldn't be a bar here you know and so you're trying to figure out where is that bound what's in the best interest of the public here um and then you're also dealing with a whole list of legal rules and having to understand what what rights does this person have with the land and what rights don't they own? And the city is giving rights and taking rights away. And and how is that process negotiated? Oh, that is fascinating. So really, then that's going to be that's going to vary a lot depending on where you are and probably how old the city is, I would assume that the. I mean, over time, they're going to accumulate more laws with more special circumstances that all that have to be considered. But someplace that doesn't have, I mean, if you, uh, what does that look like? So that's that's very different than like kind of a blank slate and establishing like a brand new city would be a totally different scenario than what you're describing. Uh, somewhat. I mean, we have new development happening here. Um, yeah, it'll definitely be different in a place where it's built out um, versus a place that is uh, a lot of what we call greenfield development happening. Like there's a lot of greenfield development happening around you. But it's really not that different. I mean, it's still the same basic regime. Um, and, and most of land use law is state-based. There's no federal land use law. Okay. Um, and so uh, states will vary somewhat. But most states in the U.S. have kind of a, worked off the same template in establishing their land use law. But, yeah, it, it'll be similar. You know, somebody will come along. Either there's a greenfield subdivision, an old farm next to you, and somebody wants to turn it into houses. Or there's a vacant lot in the city that has a building that just got torn down. Either way, a developer purchases the lot from a property owner and pays a certain amount. And then they approach the city and say, I want to build this. And there's, there's a zoning law that says what they can or can't build. 
And a lot of times, you know, that farmland might be zoned for very low density homes. There's no infrastructure there. There's no anything. And so the builder says, well, I'd actually like to build a, a hundred townhomes here, uh, much higher density. And so then he has to do a bunch of studies. He works with the city and negotiates with them. He does a traffic study. I sit down with him at the table and say, okay, well, you're going to develop, you know, generate enough traffic that we have to have a traffic light at this intersection now. And that's $400,000. So, you know, what are you going to do? You want to have these with us or what? Uh, <laughs> is that oh, is and, really yeah. like 400 grand for a traffic oh, light? At least, at least. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, public, infra- public infrastructure is expensive. That's the thing about it. And wow. so, yeah, developers are, uh, it, it, a lot of things get negotiated. Sometimes the city is investing in public infrastructure speculatively, you know, really wanting to grow. Uh, sometimes the developer, sometimes a lot of cities are very anti-growth. And so the developer is having to lobby and lobby and push for a year to get something approved. Um, it kind of, it depends. There's all kinds of, and, and the, the, the laws, the national laws, the, and the state laws set up incentives for cities and, and local developers too. So. Oh, that is fascinating. I feel like there's so many follow-up yes. questions I want to ask, but I'm going to stick with uh, uh, my, my list for the moment at least. Um, all right. So the key word in the resolution that students have to balance are benefits and harms of urbanization. Um, can you help us with any thoughts about the meaning of that word urbanization? Is that just referring to like a city getting bigger, people moving to the city, or is there more to that term that we should know about? I would generally think of urbanization as as being integration into the urban economy um, in the sense that most of the U.S. is urbanized now, something like 80 plus percent. Um, but people would have different definitions. Some people in the U.S. really see urban as specifically higher density development. And so if you live in a suburb of a major city, you might think that you're not in a particularly urban place. Um, but I think in a, a more conventional definition from economics is you're a member of an, of an urban economy. Uh, your your economic base is not coming from the farmland around you. You know, people basically extracting natural resources, growing food, um, and then towns scattered around that have support services, lawyers and bankers and everything to support that economic base. Uh, you're really engaging in what we call an agglomeration economy. And an agglomeration economy is why cities boom and thrive. And that's when uh, if firm produces something that doesn't require you know, natural resources or space, like a manufacturing firm, maybe they're importing their natural resources, they're hiring a bunch of people, and people working together are generating money, they're generating value through trade or labor. Um, and agglomeration economies happen when a bunch of different similar firms are all close together. Like, uh, you'll notice in a lot of cities that similar firms will cluster. Like there's a, a small town that my family has a lot of connections to in Indiana that has a huge biomedical device manufacturing cluster. Uh, and they've got four or five companies there manufacturing these devices. And that makes sense to them because they start to draw a labor pool that they all work from. And and their scientists jump around from one company to the other. And yeah, you're building up those overlapping benefits within one uh, labor market. So then the, so urbanization is really this, we could kind of define that in terms of opposition to agrarian almost in a sense. And then looking at kind of all the pieces that go into make that kind of, that you call it the urban economy. Mm-hmm. Okay. That is really intriguing. Um, now help us think through, cause we, this, this, from talking with you, it seems like this is all like right on the tip of your mind. Like this is, this is where you live day in and day out. What are what all are the pieces that go to construct an urban economy? So I'm thinking for, uh, and what I've been reading so far about West African countries, it seems like they have some cities that are decades, centuries old, 
but they also have huge sections of the country where uh, still some countries have 80 to 90% of their population is rural, but now mm-hmm. they're moving to the city. So we've got this kind of almost this booming urban economy growing. Like, what are all the pieces that need to happen before you could recognizably say, aha, here an urban economy is like, it's developed, it's there, it's happening. Um, I would say the, what are people employed in primarily? If the majority of people are still subsistence farming or even in some kind of agriculture, that's clearly not an urban economy. Um, But yeah, Urbanization is a lot easier to see, I think, in a less developed nation because things are a little bit strange in the U.S. The vast majority of people, I would argue, in the U.S. are urbanized. Um, You are, I am. Um, But because we have such plentiful, uh, A, the government has invested trillions of dollars over the years in road infrastructure. uh, And we also have a very high income, so we're all able to afford private cars. uh, And cars allow you to spread out a long way. Uh, a lot of people can commute a very long way. And so you have an exurban phenomenon. You have people that are living in sort of rural, there's a rural county out west of here, you'll just see farms and things like that. But I'd actually argue most of those people are urbanized and then most of them are commuting to a, that most of their money is coming from a metro area or like all the people in central Virginia out, you know, an hour or two outside of DC, maybe they're retired. Uh, maybe they made their money in an urban economy as a, an attorney and then they retired and bought a horse farm two hours away. That person I would still say is an urban person. They, they made money through that exchange with other, you know, with other people Mm -hmm. there. Um, uh, So, yeah, I would say in in a lot of developing nations, it's a lot more obvious because folks are not able to commute as far. And so cities get very dense and and very uh, chaotic early um, and and grow really, really rapidly. Um, And the, uh, incomes go up. I think that's a, that's a key thing. I mean, er, the reason people urbanize is because they find way more opportunities in that context than, than in an agrarian economy. Well, let's talk about some of that uh, population density for just a moment. Um, uh, how do cities, you mentioned earlier that some cities actively work against the idea of growth. Um, how do cities structure for growth? Is that a common mindset to kind of expect Aha, we're going to grow by 2%, 5%, 10%, 20%. And like, however, how, how does that work on the city planning end of things? Yeah, as a planner, you should you should have what's called the central intelligence function in planning. You should be aware of what's likely to happen. And we use pro- population projections all the time and that kind of thing. Um, but I mean, cities approach it all very differently. Um, usually, often cities are reacting. Often they grow because of... Uh, you know, they grow organically because there's market demand because um, they're booming. Um, and then uh, reactively, they're trying to go in and fix things and put an in infrastructure. And, and that is frustrating sometimes because, you know, it's so much more expensive to retrofit an area than it is to build it right the first time. But at the same time, um, you know, in China, they've done a lot of just brand new city building and just throw up a city of 60,000 people you know, an hour away and just build it and, and sell it. And they haven't been wildly successful with that. I would argue, um, you know, that there, there's a certain, a loss of, as you alluded to earlier, Soviet style, whatever it's cities are so big and complex, uh, that they are hard to plan effectively. Like they really do need to be organic in some way. So yeah, it's, it's hard not to be reactive at a certain level. Um, but yeah, and a lot of 
developing nations, the biggest issue is is just um, public health infrastructure, sewage and uh, water supply. Um, transportation really quickly becomes a problem. Uh, they get congested really rapidly. So walk us through some of the specifics there that you would see. I mean, like what are the uh, what are the potential harms that could happen if a city in a span of, say, six months suddenly increases by a million people? Hmm. I would say you would like to be you'd be likely to have a lot of infrastructure problems really quickly. Um, that said, if all those people are coming to the city, it's probably because there's a huge benefit to them opportunity wise. Um, I'm trying to think in terms of real, I'm going to be a little bit biased because I'm going to say that at least from an economic perspective, urbanization is just a pure gain. Now I do have a little bit of a Wendell Berry in me. So <laughs> there's a little bit of a loss. Don't there we that all? I have a sense. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of what I would argue and this resolution are neg are harms. It's easy for me to come up with benefits if you sort of understand how urban economies work, but harms. Well, do, uh, do start with those benefits for us. Cause on our previous yeah. episode, Ethan and I managed to come up with a lot more harms than benefits. So if benefits are coming first to your mind, I'd love to get those on the on the on this episode if we could. Yeah, actually, can I throw out a couple of books that sure, I actually that'd be that great. I'm sitting around right here because I am prepping for a class I, I teach. Um, <laughs> the first book you should definitely read is called Triumph of the City by Ed Glazer. He is a urban economist at Harvard, um, and this is a great, really. A catchy book that's got a lot of stories about, um, including developing nations, how they come about. If you have really, really aggressive uh, readers or folks that want a challenge, um, this is Alain Breton's Order Without Design, How Market Shapes Cities. And that's all about kind of the development of, and, and growth of cities and has a lot of international applications as well. Um, another great book for understanding the U.S. more, but it, it mentions uh, mostly other developed nations is uh, Zoned in the USA by Sonia Hurt, which is uh, the origins and implications of the American land use regulations. Um, yeah, benefits wise, I would say uh, the biggest one is just opportunity. That's why people come to cities. And, and a city maximizes, uh, Lambert Todd talks about the 30 minute um, commute shed. So uh, most people are willing to commute about 30 minutes a day uh, or about 30 minutes one way. And that's actually been true through most of history. If you look at the shape of even prehistoric cities, um, they're based on how far people can walk within about 30 minutes. Um, if you look at old town Alexandria, it's, you know, it's within that sort of length. Uh, and different forms of transportation uh, and different configurations of roads can make that um, easier or harder. You know, if you, if you cut a big highway through a bunch of um, farmland, suddenly you've, uh, you've, broaden the area that people can access within that 30 minute um, shed. And so uh, a, a big measure of, of what um, benefit a city is providing to people is what kinds of opportunities, job opportunities, recreation opportunities, what kinds of other social opportunities can people access within that travel time. Um, and so urbanization gives them a ton more options. And you're moving from an, uh, a rural area to an urban area, you suddenly have so many more possibilities. Second big advantage is uh, just income and strength, strength of the economy for the country. Um, it, if you look within, obviously there's all kinds of things going on in different nations with their history and, and how developed their economy is. But if you look within those at the size of the city, it's actually an exponential effect for every, uh, for every, I would say, um, I'm trying to remember the actual numbers, um, but there's something like a 1.3 multiplier 
Like if the city doubles in size, it multiplies two and a half times in GDP. So mm-hmm. just the the more people that can be part of that labor market together, if it can cluster together, the the more dynamic that engine becomes. And that's part of why big gets bigger. And and you have to- the Tokyos of the world and Sao Paulo's, they just continue to grow because the more people that they can integrate, uh, the the bigger and the wealthier they can become. Now that reaches a limit point when, you know, there's so people can't, can't uh, be mobile within those places. They can't take advantage of that because they can't, can't get across the metro area, et cetera. Even Hampton Roads, you know, you think about being right in the middle of Norfolk. It's about a 30 minute drive to get up to Newport News or down to Chesapeake or over to mm-hmm. Beach. It's kind of that. And it's very auto driven. That's fascinating. Um, I'd, it reminds me of I was, a moment I was sitting in um, James Brandon's Understanding Theater class at Hillsdale. And he told us that uh, the human attention span runs in 30, 45, and 90-minute chunks. And then he was like, and then he just started naming TV shows and plays and movies that, uh, and particularly for plays, he could go back centuries and there are short one acts that tend to be about 30 minutes. There are slightly more convoluted ones between 45 and 50. And then there are long ones that tend to be about an hour and a half. Then That's where you take an intermission. Doesn't matter if it's the best thing in the world. But there, there, it's just, that just stuck with me as like something about time. And there's something that, oh, that... 30 minute commute window is really interesting. So even as our technology expands, all that does is expand what we can fit into that commute window. Yeah. To a certain extent. Yeah. It, it expands that what we can fit in, it expands the amount of land that we can eat up to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so people also want, they want space. They feel bunched up when they're too close together. Uh, and you can solve that problem by building tall buildings. So that's what happens. But uh, and you'll see in the middle in the middle of the city, which has the most access to everything, um, that's the highest value land. And so that's where dense buildings will get built to uh, take advantage of that expensive land. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's so. So those are the reasons people often move to cities is that that opportunity. Um, that's an advantage. A big advantage is that people today and this was not true historically. It's not true in the Middle Ages, but um, people are much healthier um, in cities and tend to have a lot higher, um, quality of life, uh, today, uh, life expectancy is longer. You have better access to medical care. Uh, we've managed to eliminate most of the, you know, in the middle ages when we didn't understand as much about medicine, um, sewage, uh, you were much, you were likely to live a lot shorter in a city because you were more exposed to diseases and, and, uh, feces and things like that. But today we've gotten rid of a lot of that. We've also managed to get rid of a lot of pollution though, developing countries are really struggling with pollution in cities still. Interesting. Um, yeah. Okay. Those are all, all rough, rough things, but yeah, people kind of make those trade-offs as they move into a city. Well, that's a really helpful list of, of benefits. What, what harms do you see there as kind of the flip side? Um, I would say uh, cultural transformation, like places as they urbanize often experience a really dramatic disruptions to their culture um you com- community is grows over time um and it's the product of, of long-running long-standing relationships and traditions that get built up um, and what you have in many developing countries and it will not developed nations as well in the old world not in the u.s so much we have a different pattern but um you have villages uh, that people mainly come from in, in rural areas and those have 
histories and connections and people have strong local support systems that don't show up in economic figures. You know, it doesn't appear in a GDP that this person is helping that person, but they have, they have that network and they have that support and they have that, mm-hmm. uh, they have a system of, of morality that's been taught that they all understand that they all can sort of roughly enforce and abide by. Um, and so you, you really disrupt that as people move to the cities and, and going along you know, the very nature of cities, Jane Jacobson, uh, Jane Jacobs wrote about this in the death and life of great American cities is that you have choice. You have just a greater and greater number of choices. Um, and when you move into a city, suddenly you have a million people that could be your friends rather than just these hundred. Uh, and so the advantage of that is you can find people that like what you like. You can join a theater club or whatever that not everybody is into back home or, you know, people get access to all these things and find people like them. But you also lose that continuity of the tribe and the tradition and, and the family structure often. Um, people rely on that less. You, you're joining a more atomized uh, economic system where uh, you're less connected to those things. Um, other things, you know, like I said, in developing countries, there's a lot of pollution. Um, I'm, not sh- I'm not sure whether in developing countries, people are healthier when they move into cities or not. Um, that could be one thing. Um, sensory overload there's a lot of talk now about the psychology of, of urban living about um mm. just how people aren't really sort of evolved for it they're not uh there, there's so many things happening around you constantly that you, 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 we kind of have to adjust culturally and personally to city life because it's not you know it's not what we're accustomed to um, i'm trying to think some other negatives that kind of uh, relational change is fascinating. I mean, I think it's, I mean, something I know the, it's almost 20 years now, um, Robert Putnam's uh, Bowling Alone yeah. kind of focused on the sociology of that sort of urbanization effect that's kind of really worked its way throughout most of America, such that uh, it's really hard, I think, for us in, say, 2020 or 2021 to really resonate with what was a relatively common experience just 100 years ago of small town living that where that small town wasn't just a place for economic advantage, mm-hmm. it was home. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, PhD program I'm in has a some, has somewhat of a fixation with uh, Ray Bradbury, or at least one of the founding professors has a fixation with Ray Bradbury. Mm-hmm. So I've had two classes that have required me to read Bradbury novels. And he manages to capture that sense that like, kind of like, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Thornton Wilder's uh, Our Town actually staged. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it too has that sort of uh, just like uh, Mayberry, this is home. These are my people. We're, we're not going to, I mean, where you can sort of assume that 80% of your high school class is going to settle within 10 miles of the high school and we're all going to grow up together, except that. I mean, you've moved away. I've moved away. Everyone I know has moved away. We've all mm-hmm. found whatever version of home we found has been somewhere else in this uh, in this kind of urbanized life that we have. And that that phrase, atomistic economy, I think is a pretty significant one because in, instead of an interwoven, interconnected, I mean that that there's all there there's a cost there. I mean, there's all kinds of benefits, yeah. but there is a cost there, and I and it's I that that's 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 going to be really hard for anybody to actually like weigh as an impact in a public forum yeah. round. But I think it's a crucial, uh, crucial impact. I mean, I think the, mm-hmm. I took a, one of the last classes I took for uh, master's level work was on um, oral or uh, oral orality versus literacy. 
Uh, uh, Walter Ong. Yeah, man. Love yeah. me some Walter Ong. He's great stuff. Uh, Bigger but, Grove City. <laughs> oh, oh, that's fantastic. Uh, he he was not somebody I ever encountered at Hillsdale, which I, in hindsight is really odd. But uh, yeah, I mean, but Walter Ong makes this great case that like there there really is something that we've lost in the way that oral communication ties us together across generations, but literacy really frees us from that. I don't have to learn from my grandpa. <laughs> I yeah. can go read books about the Great Depression where and, and so there's something there, too, where tribal Africa is still one of the largest sections of orality left in the world. And as urbanization spreads, so, too, does modern Western education and literate education. And that's that totally. does tie people into a global economy in a really beneficial way, but perhaps at a cost of this traditional lifestyle that uh, could disappear and not really be recovered. Yeah. And it'll be, you know, to be seen whether those traditions that they come from adjust to that and sort of try to bend rather than break. And, you know, I think we have enough in the West and and in Europe, you know, we sort of went through the full urbanization and modernization process in a way that, I think our tradition evolved with it, but mm-hmm. a lot of places where this hits them in one or two generations is it's a dramatic whiplash. And uh, if the tradition can't update itself, you know, oftentimes people are left without that tradition and, and people uh, suffer when they don't have some kind of tradition or some kind of guiding narrative or meaning from their community of how they're supposed to live. Uh, another thing that I would throw out there that Wendell Berry would argue, uh, and this is like a borderline Marxist argument, but I think there's, well, not really Marxist, but it's there's some validity to it. Um, but that's the alienation economy mm-hmm. of the urban, urban that you what you do is you're so alienated from the effects of what you do. Uh, when you're in the village, it's like okay, you go out and dump a bunch of trash, and everybody kind of sees you dumping the trash, and you can see where you dump the trash. And like I should take care better care of this property. Versus now, you know, I put my trash in a dumpster and it goes away, and I don't know what happens. And never, I know what happens to it because I'm a city planner, but most people don't know what happens to it. <laughs> um, you know, I uh, I burn. Um, I drive my car and burn a bunch of CO2. It disappears in the atmosphere. It causes some, you know, mild uh, impacts to people that are hundreds of thousands, you know, thousands of miles away. I cool. never see it. Um, I engage and I, I buy a phone and, you know, that creates a whole product line elsewhere that is t- I'm totally detached from. So yeah, Wendell Berry would argue that part of why you, uh, we need more focus on community and, and smaller communities need to thrive is because people need to understand their effects, the effects of their actions on the place. Um, and I think that that's possible. It's just different ways of going about it. There's kind mm-hmm. of a, an organic way that that can happen in a village where in a city, it's got to be policy and, you know, uh, um, costs and yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely, that's part of why you do at least certainly we've a lot of our conversation focused on an American context. I mean, I think the, um, Oh goodness, this is going back. I learned this from Stonebridge, but it's a I think it's far more true than some of the other ideas I learned at Stonebridge. But the uh the the American principle of uh, association uh mm. is is key to that. I mean, I think it's part of why as you get the rise of these of major cities in America, they are it's paralleled with the growth of different associations, people forming these tight networks. Um mm. I went to a conference last year that assigned us before we got there It assigned a, a chapter from a, I don't remember his name is a chap, a UNC Chapel Hill American historian who was looking at the rise of 
uh, Scottish, Irish, and other immigrant group uh, groups that formed their own uh, life insurance policy companies in yeah. early 20th century New York. And I found it fascinating. This is like right before the rise of the welfare state. Huh. And it just, it was that same idea of like, here is this community that's now been transplanted from a traditional Irish village. And now there's people who never would have interacted in Ireland, except they would have shared a language and a culture. Mm-hmm. Now they're all in these apartment buildings and they're going to form their own associations to help each other live a better life. And there's some kind of core identity that ties them together. And they're sort of trying to replicate some of those natural tendencies in a village. Uh, that's thought is fascinating. I, I do. Do you think property ownership does any of that as well? Like, cause I would argue I pay a lot more attention to what I do on my property now that I actually own it than when I was a renter. Like I care about, my own actions more. And I don't know if that's really just me or if that's like a widespread effect of property Absolutely. ownership. Yeah, I think that's that's a goal. That's part of why we value property ownership. I will say that Americans have a very fixed idea of property ownership and it's maybe more complicated than that. Like in, in planning law and, and um, in land use law, we talk about property ownership as a bundle of rights. You, you can't put land in your pocket or whatever or carry it around. It's like, it's what you actually own is a set of rights that are on file at the courthouse that you can go and appeal to, you know? Um, and some, some, uh, places use those, separate those rights differently. Like in the U S right of exclusion is a really big deal. Mm. Um, somebody can't trespass. It's not the case in other countries like in Japan or in the UK, you don't really have right of exclusion. If you are using the property, if you build a house and a fence around your property, then people can't come in the fence. But if you don't, you know, if you just own a field and you're not doing anything on it, somebody can't damage your crops, but they can walk across the field, you know? So, um, in Japan, actually, you can't even, if you're, if you're an absentee landowner, you just own a piece of property and you don't even live there. People can come and build shacks and, you know, build little shanties and live on it. And you can't evict them unless the, you could show the court that, Hey, I need to use the property. I need to plant some stuff or whatever. Um, so it's, there's different, you know, some places, uh, in, in the UK, you don't have, um, by right development abilities. You actually, anything you build, you have to get. Uh, public approval for and that makes it really hard to build things um other countries have much looser um and we're actually almost closer to that than we are to like german or french systems where it's a lot easier to build but yeah anyway property ownership is is a mixed bag but i would say uh yeah it definitely helps i do think though part of the problem with u.s property ownership is that we, we a we view it as absolute um and again that I was talking to a friend who was complaining that he had to pay property taxes. Cause he's like, do I, if I don't pay my taxes, they take the land. So do I really own it? And I was like, well, what you're talking about is what we call sovereignty or allodial ownership. And that's the ownership you get when you can defend it from all, t- all comers, you know, um, and you can't. So you, you would need to appeal to a police force and a judge to enforce your claim to it. And to the, eventually to the U S federal government's army, uh, and so you'll have to pay a fee to them. Um, so that's, you know, we, it's not absolute. And also property ownership is great. I mean, it's like anything else you understand, you, you know, like capitalism or socialism stuff. Like if you can connect the decision maker with the consequences of their decision, that's great. That's like privatization. That's a good incentive system. And hopefully generally capitalism does that, but land is really hard. Uh, just what you do on it has so many domino effects that kind of what we end up with is we try to go for that system, but then we end up with all these little regulatory patchwork things. Um, you know, because 
water runs off of properties and to other properties and you dig something or you make noise or you build something ugly. And then there's just a constant public debate happening. Um, and there's opportunities for synergy where, you know, people in one area can agree on a common good or an ideal way of orienting things, but it might not match the way that people currently have their property set up. And so anyway, I don't know. I'm, I'm straying very far afield from your question. I'm realizing. Oh no, that, that's, that's I'm trying to think about like, I, I, I don't know. I, I still lean very, very capitalistic if we're talking about right, a yeah. theoretical debate. And I, I can barely stomach any of the actual socialistic practices. But I at least have a I have a lot of sympathy for the the theoretical socialist kind of move to say, and almost like in at least in the stuff I've run across, the theoretical socialist approaches tend to be much more communitarian in in nature, where they're focusing more on kind of the good of the whole. But in theory, and usually something yeah. like, but it in very few, with very few exceptions, we have such a mediated capitalistic model today that the the natural consequences of, I mean, I, I, I've most recently been thinking about this in terms of um, uh, universities and their cost model. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the, and I, I, I <laughs> well, I'm thinking like, okay, the GI Bill was a huge blessing, benefit to returning soldiers from World War II. And yet, in such a huge way, once universities have tied themselves to federal money, they are cushioned from the reality of the market. They no longer have to figure out how to offer their services at a price that the public can afford. Now, in a sense, there's always been a public-private partnership with higher ed. 1945 is not a completely unique moment, but it's a substantial change. And so I'm like, that's, that's, it's not a, it's not a totally free market. So in like, all of that just means it's more complex than the like capitalist socialist dynamic really allows for. It's not really either of them. It's a managed system that has evolved in a way that like each generation has tried to change it to fit their current needs. And it's really hard to say if it's better or worse, because we're always looking at it from our current moments point of view. Exactly. I think, I think that's a deficiency of, both communistic idealism and sort of some libertarians, you know, they want to create, uh, and sort of some of the history of America is wanting to create an a priori, let's just start with one, a few logical axioms and work from there. (laughs) And, you know, you, you inherit a system that you're born into that's already ongoing and you tweak, and that's a great analogy for cities because that's, Cities are exactly like that. The, the amount of money that goes into building just the basic infrastructure, the, the amount of labor and effort to, you know, that makes this. That's why cities go on and on forever, even in where economic debate disappears. Um, but they, uh, yeah, I lost you for a second there. But um, yeah, they they build over time, and and people inherit. It's very hard to replicate what somebody has in an eight hundred year old European city. That you know, the amount of labor that's gone into every square inch of <laughs> that property over the oh, years yeah. especially when you think about the, and, yeah. oh, the ways that like, even gets updated with i mean i just i cannot imagine i mean uh inheriting a thousand year old home and then thinking this is great this is a priceless piece of history but good lord i want air conditioning so I'm yeah where are the duck, where's the duck work <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, well, that what do i do like reason. where yeah. there's something's leaking i don't know it's somewhere in this thousand yeah. year of piping like it's crazy um 
Well, that's a huge issue with uh, cars too. I was going to say because uh, we had a, we tore up a lot of U.S. cities um, to uh, to build giant roads so that we could park cars everywhere when they came in because cars are very space consumptive, and that's going to be an issue in African cities as they grow. If as people get wealthier, this is happening in China now. A lot more than will purchase automobiles, and uh, it gets much much harder to run a dense city. I, I don't even see how it's possible in China, and I think in a lot of other countries they will end up being more like Singapore where they just really, really heavily tax automobile usage. Um, That's it's just, fascinating. Yeah. Well, Luke, let's, uh, let's wrap this up with a couple of, okay. uh, let me just hit you with a couple of things I've, I've found so far. I'm, it's still pretty early. This resolution's for February. So okay. um, here's a couple of facts I've, I've heard. I just want to kind of get your take on it. I know your expertise is in uh, American city planning, not so much, uh, you, you haven't gone on to get a PhD in African diplomacy and bureaucracy, bureaucratic management or anything like that. But um, factoid number one, uh, I'm pulling this from a Brookings Institute report. Uh, apparently in 1950, there were 27 million people who lived on the continent of Africa. In 2020, that number has increased to 567 million. It means sub-Saharan Africa, right? Uh, the article actually just kind of lumped all of Africa together with a hyperlink. So, uh, it may, that may be sub-Saharan Africa or it should be, it should be higher than that. Anyway. (laughs) Okay. Well, I mean, like, what are your, what are your thoughts on dealing with that much population growth? Like what kind of just, just what are your thoughts on hearing those numbers as a city planner? Um, well, before I got into city planning, I was a demographer at UVA and that's, that's a whole other can of worms because, um, (laughs) when you have that rapid population growth, you have the population pyramid, which we don't have anymore. We have a population column, but uh, they still have that pyramid where there's tons of babies at the bottom and narrowing up to the top. And you end up with a very, very young population. And that can make for a really dynamic economy, um, but also can make for uh, a lot of um, cultural disruption. You know, generally the younger the society is a lot of the Arab spring countries, you know, that had those revolutions were very young nations. And that's when, those kinds of revolutions happen when there's lots of uh, young people um, kind of like the U S in the sixties with the baby boom coming through. Uh, so that's one thing I would think of in terms of population growth. Um, also. Yeah. Well, anyway, go ahead. Oh, I think this is always, I, I, I have never thought about that as a catalyst for revolution. I think I've, I've tended to think kind of about the, like the the culmination of a series of ideas into a certain generation, that kind of intellectual history approach. But yeah. that's really interesting. Think of, think of it as the soil for that. <laughs> that's yeah, the seed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but that makes sense why you would get, I mean, cause there's like, uh, I mean, you get a whole, you get, if you have a mass amount of adults and, and older adults, like they honestly, um, I find that people in their thirties, forties and higher today are not reading tons of crazy stuff college students are reading all kinds of crazy stuff. They're really interested yeah. in the crazy stuff, but we currently have that. We have way more old people than we do young people, as I understand it today in the United yeah. States. Yeah. Most of the West does now. And it's society's kind of tend to stabilize then, or even become more reactionary as they get older. Well, I think that that probably is the, uh, the other thing I want to ask you about. I ran across the phrase youth bulge, and I'm assuming that that's referring to this uh, swollen population at the bottom of the pyramid um yeah that's uh i i have not been able to find a a state a total list of what exactly these huge cities are um one article listed 
and I may be butchering these names, but uh, Barnico, Niami, and Conakry uh, as three huge, massive cities that each have more than 50% of their country's wealth and GDP production contained within those cities. Um, so I now you've told us a lot about these cities as centers of opportunity and that kind of opportunity being the big draw. That's why people can move to cities. Um, can you share any kind of closing thoughts or any thoughts with us about uh, slums and the existence? Because several of the uh, pictures I've seen so far and articles I've read have talked about these city, one city had, I don't know which city, but it had 4 million people living in a single slum. And it seems that, yeah, it just seems that there's a lot more people than there are opportunities in these cities, but people keep moving to the cities. What are your thoughts? I mean, first of all, look to people's individual choices. If they're still moving to the slums, the chances are there's still opportunity that they're coming for. You know, okay. um, people don't do just purely not self-interested things. Um, but yeah, there's a lot more to meet to the eye than slums. That's why I'd really recommend this Triumph of the City book by Ed Glazer because he goes into depth more on on slums. Um, I did a, I helped write a um, a public health uh, case study for uh, the slum Daravi in Mumbai. And it's this really hyper dense, chaotic slum right in the middle of Mumbai. And the government had this huge program to redevelop it and, and uh, wanted to clear out huge sections of it and build new public housing towers. That's a lot of what happened in the U.S. And that's not there's not a great history to that. And they even in Mumbai, have started to discover that that didn't work very well, um, that the, the even in the chaos, that organic order in those slums often works better than the government coming in and just constructing something from scratch. Um, over time, now what is an issue in a lot of slums is a public health. Oftentimes they don't have public health infrastructure and that can create really rapid spread of, in, in Dharavi's case, tuberculosis. Um, so that's probably the first thing the government should do is try to focus on, on, um, providing some kind of sewage. Uh, but secondly, property rights are a huge issue. You mentioned, um, mentioned that. And, uh, in a lot of slum areas, there's just not really any kind of property rights. And there's advantage, advantages to that, um, in that people are able to get a, a piece of that opportunity. You know, it, one of the downsides of, of land property rights is that unlike other areas of the economy where a rising tide lifts all boats and, you know, we can grow the pie, you don't grow the pie in land. Land is land and there's fixed, there's zero sum amount. I'd argue that's part of why cap communism was more successful at persuading agrarian societies where the wealth was more land-based because uh, they can... Mm. It, it makes more sense in that context. Yeah. If a bunch of people own all the land and the other people don't own the land, the people that own the land control everybody else and you got to rise up, whatever. We're in an, an industrial economy. That doesn't make as much sense. You can start from nothing and build your way up. But uh, yeah, some of these slums are really areas of opportunity in that um, they're places where people can get very cheap access to the, the kind of jobs that are available there by living very densely. Um, you know, uh, Density, Americans don't like density, but density is uh, part of that uh, part of that opportunity. And it's it's a way that people who can't compete, um, you know, who can't compete for like your house is probably on what, a fourth of an acre or something like that or half an um, acre. Yeah. Yeah. If you're in the middle of the city, let's say you're closer to the middle of the city where all the jobs are. <laughs> And uh, <clears throat> Bourgeois Josh, right now, wherever we oh. are, my my house uh, owns this half acre, but there's like three poor families that you know want to get into the same area and get that same access to the jobs that you have from your location. Uh, the way that they compete with you is by bunching up. 
and all three of them moving on your half acre, you know? Uh, and so that's what density ends up becoming is this really um, intense way of getting that opportunity and getting them into the center of the city. And that's part of why the Ravi is still booming. And I would say a lot of those slums in, in West African nations too, is um, they're places that people are using as entry toeholds into that. So that sounds to me like it would be a great strategy for people on the pro side on this resolution to find one or two cities that might be the case study cities that you focus on for your analysis and really map out what is that opportunity. Is that is it in mm-hmm. private companies? Is it in new developed fields of industry that no one really understands yet, but they're they're hiring and they're mm-hmm. paying? Uh, where is it in mining? Like where is that opportunity? And be able to, I, I really like your focus on individual choice. So the fact that like people are still, even if we look at it from an American point of view and think who on earth would live in this slum, but it makes perfect sense for a fifth son to uh, move from the, the village into the city and maybe spend 10 years living there. But maybe he's, I don't know if he's supporting the entire family back home with his, with his revenue or or what but there's there's some reason where that makes sense and i think that's 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 a really helpful analysis yeah and a lot of uh you know you can even look at the history of new york city and the tenements that folks moved into when they first came there and, and bounced around and you know i i think in the u.s we've really both as, for aesthetic reasons and for sort of bourgeois sensibility reasons or whatever we've really tried to to clear out any of that from happening. We have very high standards for entry-level housing, for entry-level, you know, we, we don't, we don't allow a lot of getting close together on land. We have, uh, we have really intense density controls in the U S that's the main way that we're different from the rest of the Western world. Um, and that, that inhibits, uh, you know, that inhibits that opportunity in cities a lot of times for people. We could do a whole nother episode just on like housing cost and, and the, the, the cost associated with yep. that. Just, I was yeah. anyway, we won't get into that, but I, it was we we were very fortunate to get into our house when we did because it was it was zoned rural and that helped us get in without a down payment. But uh, the year after that, we were it was rezoned and we're now in it's now zoned urban. So uh, we would not have access to a USDA loan that we, we ended huh. up using. So it was God's timing on helping us get into our house when we did. But oh, man, um, I'm all about housing affordability stuff. It's, it's a oh, massive issue in Charlottesville. It's Charlottesville's blowing up and uh, housing prices have skyrocketed. There's there's almost nothing in the Raleigh area and the surrounding. Like you have to get. I mean, we're 25 minutes from downtown Raleigh where mm-hmm. I live, and there's yeah, there's almost nothing below 250 thousand for a house yeah. anymore in this area. And a lot of that is, is, is American history. You know, there's there's a natural uh, if you read like urban, you know, um, urban economic stuff, there's a, a density gradient that starts to build up in the city over time. And the U.S. in the 20th century really locked that down. I think our biggest cultural uh, our cultural relationship to urbanism is that we hate density. Um, and so we've come up with all kinds of ways for neighbors to object to it um, and to stop it. And so we we have definitely the most intense um way you know maybe other than the uk density controls in the u.s um and it it creates a a big issue for us in terms of the city can't can't grow or can't provide the housing supply and that is absolutely fascinating luke thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us i have learned a lot on this conversation that i never knew about Uh, it is a delight to talk with people who have spent the time and the effort in researching and learning about an area and then are willing to share what they've learned. 
And thanks for having me. This was really, uh, really fun. Glad that you're, uh, it sounds like an interesting subject. I wish I had more to say about the actual resolution. <laughs> well, fortunately, I, I think the uh, we have plenty of stuff to hand. I have plenty of specific cards to hand my students, but at least the the biggest thing I've seen found that students need is not just research, but they need a they need the wider conceptual stuff to really put that into context. And that's that's what you've mm-hmm. given us today. So thank you so much for that. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us on this episode of What's the Res? Uh, we here at What's the Res would love to get your feedback on this episode. You can do that uh, by emailing us at whatstherez at gmail.com. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at the uh, handle what's the Re- or at what's the res underscore. Uh, if you are on Facebook, which I think most of our listeners uh, are not if they're actual debaters, but you can find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com sl- uh, slash what's the res. Uh, my guest this episode has been Luke Juday. And until next time, uh, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth. Mm-hmm.